The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. This past week I saw a website that listed out 10 reasons why atheism is superior to religion, written by Nat Queen. I'm only going to read you the first five just for the sake of time. But first was, which religion? I mean, all these religions claim to have the one true God and the only authority, and they claim to be right, which means every other religion is wrong. And so one reason why atheism is superior to every other religion is because nobody knows which religion is the right religion. Secondly, where is the evidence? If there's a God, why can't we see God? Why can't we see his work? Why can't we see evidence that he exists? Third, God is a despicable, evil monster. It says, If such a God really cared about the people of the world and was was as powerful as modern religions claim, he could certainly make himself known to everyone in an unmistakable manner, thus dispelling doubt and at the same time revealing which religion, if any, is the true one. Fourth, why bother? It is ridiculous to imagine that a God having a character claimed by most modern religions would really be so selfish or egotistical as to demand or even expect that people would pay constant homage to him. Fifth, religion is a waste of time and energy. Think of all the time and energy expended by religious people preaching and praying and singing hymns. There's no evidence that any of these activities ever produced positive Results, And then he goes on through numbers 6 through 10 of why atheism is a better religion than religion. And then he ends with this conclusion. Especially for those stuck in the dreary old rut of religion, there is no God. Stop worrying and enjoy your life. Is atheism superior to every religion? Is there one religion that is superior to other religions? Is there one God that is superior to all other gods? Isn't it arrogant to say that my God is a true God and your God is a false God? How could anybody say there is one God and there is one religion? Isn't that arrogant? Is religion just this cosmic buzzkill trying to take away your hope and your joy and make you live a dreary life? life. Well, I hope today to answer all of those questions by answering just one question. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? Let's open up to Exodus chapter 10. We're going to continue with the ninth plague. I'm not sure what what chapter, what, where it is in the Bible right now, what page number, but it's Exodus chapter 9, and we're going to read together the ninth plague. Exodus 10, verse 21 through 29. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord, 
your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take of them we must take of them to serve the Lord our God, and we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on that day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. Let's pray. Lord, as we turn our attention to these plagues in Egypt, plagues that, that almost all of culture has heard about, Lord, may we know that you are God, that you are the one and only true God. Without any doubt, knowing that you are Lord over all, even over us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So what is the purpose of the 10 plagues in Egypt? Maybe if someone came up and asked you that, what would you say to them? Would you say the purpose of the plagues of Egypt was to let Israel go free? Well, certainly that happened. Israel was liberated. They were delivered, released out of bondage. But if God wanted to do that, he could have simply brought a cloud and lifted them all up and taken them across the Red Sea. Or maybe he thought, you know, the purpose was just to smite all the Egyptians, but he doesn't kill them all off. And so what is the purpose of the 10 plagues of Egypt? Well, the the reason why God sends 10 plagues upon Egypt, these wonders and signs, is to answer one question. To answer one simple question. And it's the question that Pharaoh asked when Moses first came to him back in Exodus chapter 5. In Exodus 5, 1 and 2, we read, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, he asked, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? This is the question that God is answering in the plagues. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? We live in a culture not too different from Pharaoh. Pharaoh lived in a pluralistic society where almost anything that was created was turned into a god. And so people would worship different gods. Pharaoh himself was a god, and and they would worship all these different gods. And people would say to one another, you worship your god, we'll worship our god. Your God is fine for you. My God is fine for me. No God is better than the other. We'll just worship the God that works for us and everybody will be happy. I know you don't hear things like that today, do you? See, there's, there's nothing new under the sun. And so the question is, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Why not obey the Egyptian gods? Why not obey the Viking gods? Why not obey all the multiple gods of the Hindus? Why not obey Allah of Muslims? Why not just obey an anonymous higher power that we can all agree upon? Who is to say that the Lord God is above all other gods? Why should we obey the Lord God above all else? 
Well, this question comes to us on a global scale in which we consider the competing world religions. And maybe that's where you're at today, wondering why is Christianity different than any other religion? But we also deal with that on a much more local level, on a much more personal level. In fact, every time you face temptation, you're faced with that very question, aren't you? I mean, think of in your life, what is that secret sin? That sin in your life that, that you think you have power over, that sin where you're like, you know, the rest of me is really good. I just have this one problem, right? What is that, that secret sin? When that sin comes tunneling your way and you are tempted, tempted to jump into that sin, when you reach that fork in that road, And you have to choose either the narrow path of righteousness or the wide path. You are faced with this very question. Who is the Lord that you should obey him? And so you see, this is a very, very relevant question, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not. And how you answer this question is extremely important. And so this is the question we're going to answer today. Who is the Lord that you, that I, that we, that all mankind should obey him? Well, first we see that the Lord is the God of creation. As we look through the plagues, there are themes that run throughout the plagues. All of the plagues are a little bit different, but there are major themes that run throughout them all. And one of the first things we see is that the Lord is God of all creation. We see that he is Lord over the animals as he multiplies frogs and gnats and flies and locusts. He even kills off livestock and horses. And so he is Lord over animals. We also see the Lord is God over nature. He turns water into blood. And not only that, but he actually turns blood back into water. He sends hail and thunder and then removes it in an instant. He puts darkness over the earth for three days. And it's so dark, it says the darkness could be felt. And then recedes it as soon as he wants to. We even see the Lord is God over humanity as he sends boils upon people and upon livestock. And just in case you didn't know, spoiler alert, in the 10th commandment, he kills all the oldest children of those who do not apply the blood of the lamb over their doorposts. And so he is God over all of creation, over animals, over nature, over humanity. And he demonstrates this to answer the one question. And we see this throughout the plagues. And in 717, before they start, Moses says, Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. You see, he's answering that question of Pharaoh, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. By this you will know that I am the Lord. He goes on in chapter 8, verse 9. Moses promises the removal of frogs, and he says, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. No one. In 8.22, the plagues of flies fill everywhere in the land of, except the land of Goshen, where Israel dwells. Why? The Lord says, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. And in 9.14, the Lord says, for this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me 
in all the earth. God exercises his authority over creation to show that he is a God above all gods. In fact, as he exercises his his authority over creation, he's also exercising authority over the gods of Egypt. You see, the Egyptians, who were pluralistic and made everything into the gods, had gods for um, for the Nile. Um, Pharaoh was a god. The sun was a god. There is even a god of the pests, like the locusts and the gnats and the flies. And as the Lord triumphs over all of them, he's showing that he is the god of all gods, the king of all kings, the ruler of all creation. You know, it's funny. We, um, in our parking lot at our office, we have two trailers, and one of them's here today because we have to pack up stuff. But But one time there was this great wind and the trailer was blown across the parking lot and into a customer's vehicle at the place that we work. And so we went to the insurance company to ask them to pay out the money. And they said, basically, they couldn't because it was an act of God, right? A great strong wind was an act of God. You know, that's when we identify creation as an act of God, isn't it? When there are these miraculous things, when Hurricane Katrina hits with all of its awesome force, or when a tsunami crashes against the coastal lands in the Indian Ocean, or when a tornado tears through Joplin, Missouri, or an earthquake shakes California, we look at it and we say, that is an act of God. But you know what else is an act of God? Everything that happens on every single ordinary day. You know what is an act of God? When the sun comes up and it melts the snow, hopefully. (laughs) When the grass grows, when the flower blossoms, when the newborn baby cries. All of those extremely ordinary, amazing things are an act of God. You know, in that article I read at the very beginning, it said, basically, where's the evidence that there's a God? It's all around. I mean, all of creation is evidence that there is a God. Romans 1.18 says that people, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. They keep it down. They, they send it away. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And so if you stand and you say, is there a God? How do I know if there is a God? All you have to do is look out your window or look at your hand or look at your children And just the complexity and beauty and glory of creation shows us that there is a creator. Now, how should we respond to this creator? Verse, chapter 9, verse 29, Moses promises to stretch out his hand and make thunder stop. He says, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Again, the same theme, but that it goes on to say, but as for you, Pharaoh, and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. An appropriate response to the creation of God, to the Lord being God over all creation, is awe and reverence and worship. 
knowing that if Christ stopped governing creation for a single second, if he went on a lunch break for a single second, all of us would surely perish. He holds all things together in his hand, sustaining all of creation. And so who is the Lord that we should obey him? He's the God of all creation. And so we should not worship the creation instead of the creator. We must go to the divine source, to God, and we must worship him as the creator of the entire universe. Secondly, who is the Lord that you should obey him? Now is the Lord the God over creation, but he is also God of salvation. We see this obviously in the Israelites. We know the story. We've heard about it over and over again that the Israelites are in Egypt for over 400 years, much of that time being oppressed. They were in physical slavery, but they were also in spiritual slavery, worshiping the gods of Egypt. And the Lord comes in and delivers them out by the plagues through the Red Sea, to freedom. And so he delivers them. He saves them. But God's salvation does not end there. It extends far beyond Israel. The Lord is also the God of salvation for the Egyptians too. You know, as we look through that nine plagues, we might've thought, you know, why doesn't God just kill off all the Egyptians? Well, what we see is as we look at these plagues, God actually gives warnings to them. Maybe you remember when God is about to send the hail, he comes to them And he warns them, he says, get your livestock and all that you have in the field in this safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. God warns the Egyptians that those who fear him might turn away, might might listen to his word. As we continue, we read that in 920, it says, then whoever feared the Lord, talking about Egyptians, whoever feared the Lord, the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh, hurried his slaves and his livestock into the house. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord, left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Countless times throughout the story, we see the Egyptians starting to know and understand who the Lord is, that he is God over all things. There are other places where the magicians say, we can't duplicate this. It was only done by the finger of God. And then later in chapter 10, when locusts are threatened, we read that the Pharaoh's servants come to him and say, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? And so the Egyptians began to understand that the Lord is the God of the entire universe. And so he is not only savior of the Israelites, but he's also savior of the Egyptians. And he's also savior of the entire world. We talked about this a little bit last week, but after the Israelites are let out of Egypt, after they're pushed out of Egypt, go through the Red Sea, make it to the promised land. They send in two spies into Jericho and they come upon this woman named Rahab, who is a prostitute. And they go into the city of Jericho and she hides them. And she gives this great declaration of why she hid them. She says that as soon as they heard that that Israel had wiped out the Egyptians, that the Lord had wiped out the Egyptians, the most powerful empire on the earth, as soon as they heard that, she said, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. And then she makes this outstanding declaration of faith. She says, for the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. The plagues and the exodus testified that the Lord God 
is the only Savior of the entire world. And so she puts her faith in him. And it even talks about it in Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 11, 31, it says, By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, I love that they say that, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. It did not matter what she had done in the past. By faith, she was saved because she knew only the Lord God saved. And so we see for the Israelites, the Egyptians, even for the the world at that time, but also for future generations. Before the locust, we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of servants, that I may know these signs of mine among them, the plagues, and that you may tell it in the hearing of your sons and of your grandsons how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. One reason that the Lord sent plagues, such fantastic and awesome plagues, was that future generations would know who the Lord is, that he is the awesome, powerful God of the universe who delivers his people. You know, the fulfillment of this verse happens today, even in us reading of God's word, reading of the plagues in the Exodus from Egypt. What we said earlier in the series is that what the New Testament teaches us about salvation, the Exodus shows us about salvation. You know, we don't serve a God or follow a God who is simply salvation or judgment, but we have a God that gives us salvation through judgment. You see, as we look at this passage, we see that God judged Pharaoh, that Israel could be saved, that some Egyptians could be saved, that much of the world could be saved, and even that we could be saved, that it is through judgment that salvation comes. You see, we are not so unlike Pharaoh. The Israelites weren't so unlike Pharaoh either. The Israelites had hard hearts. They had turned away from the promises of God time and time again. Moses tried to get out of his calling on several times. The Egyptians had hard hearts. Pharaoh had hard hearts. This is the mutual human condition that we are hard-hearted and rebellious against God. But the only difference is the grace of God. You see, judgment came upon Pharaoh that Israel might be saved. And in the same way, God sent his only son, Jesus Christ. And that is through judgment upon him for our hardness of heart that we gain salvation through Christ. At the cross, Jesus got the plagues and the judgment of God that we deserve in order that we get the deliverance and salvation he earned. You know, many will say all religions are the same. All gods are the same. I've shared this illustration before, but I think it's such a helpful illustration. There, there are people who talk about how, how religion is like climbing a mountain. And at the top of the mountain, there's this higher power. Call him whatever you want. Call him the Lord, call him Allah, call him whatever you want. There's this higher power at the top of the mountain. And all of us are climbing this mountain to get up to this God. And we don't know maybe who he is, but at the top, we'll all get there. And we'll all see, oh, it's all the same God. But Christianity is so drastically different than any other religion. You see, in every religion, you have to climb your way up to God. But in Christianity, God climbs his way down to you. Because you could never climb to God. 
all of us have hardened hearts except for the Holy Spirit turning us and changing us to love God and enjoy God and trust in God. If the Hebrews wanted to be saved, if the Egyptians wanted to be saved, if the world wanted to be saved, if you want to be saved, if I want to be saved, there is only one God to cry out to, the Lord God, who took on our judgment to give us salvation. Acts 4.11 says, Salvation is found in no one else but Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. We must turn to Christ and Christ alone, for he is the Lord of salvation. Thirdly, who is the Lord that we should obey him? First, we saw that he is the God of creation. Secondly, he is the God of salvation. Finally, we see he is the God of vivification. That's right, vivification. I know you might be thinking, did you just make that word up? And I kind of did. I, I made it up, all right? But I checked the dictionary, and it was actually a word. And it meant exactly what I wanted it to mean. So it was a happy day. Vivification, an actual word, and this is what vivification is. Vivification is to give life or to animate or to enliven. How many of you have seen the Charlton Heston film, Cecil B. DeMille or whatever, The Ten Commandments? How many of you have seen that? Anyone here? Okay. Lots of people beyond probably over Easter, right? When Moses goes to Pharaoh, what does he say to Pharaoh? Let my people go, right? He says, let my people go. Let my people go. Let my people go. But he misses the most important part of the Exodus. That's not what Moses says. Moses doesn't just go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. He's very specific about the letting go of God's people. He says, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. See, they were serving Pharaoh and he says, let my people go that they may serve me, the Lord, in the wilderness. He says this again in, verse, in, in the second plague, the fourth plague, the fifth plague, the seventh plague. And throughout it, we see that this idea of letting the people go that they may serve God is synonymous with sacrificing to the Lord, worshiping to the Lord, feasting with the Lord. And so this is so extremely important to understand is that God never, ever, ever, ever just saves us from something. But God always saves us onto something. The Exodus is not only a freedom from slavery, but it's a freedom to glory. God doesn't save us and to deliver us that we might be free to do whatever we want and to be autonomous and to be with no God at all. But he saves us to do exactly what we were called to do, to worship him, to enjoy him in all of life. Yes, God saves us from bondage, but he also saves us unto life as he's created it to be. A life with God and for God and in God. As we read through this, we also see that not only does God free us to something, but because God is a jealous God, he doesn't want to share you with any other God of the universe. You know, it's interesting because as we read through this passage, Pharaoh at first just outright denies, no, you cannot go, no, you cannot go, no, you cannot go. And then as we read along, Pharaoh starts to compromise. Did you pick up on that? And so Pharaoh first starts to compromise by saying, uh, you can go sacrifice to the Lord, but do it within the land, right? Don't go out there, just do it right here. And Moses says, no, we can't do that. We'll be stoned. And then Pharaoh tries 
to negotiate with God again, saying, send just the men, but keep the women and children and flocks here. Moses said, no, we can't, we can't do that. God wants all of us. And then Pharaoh tries to negotiate, saying, you and your family can go, but leave the livestock. And Moses said, can't do it. God wants all of us. It's all or nothing. See, Pharaoh wanted them to serve both the Lord and Pharaoh, but God wouldn't share. He said, no, you must serve me and serve me alone. God is not very good at sharing his people. He doesn't want to share his people. When God saves you, he refuses you. He refuses to share you with any other God. He wants you all to himself. I don't know if you've ever done this, but if you've ever tried to teach a teenager how to drive, it is one of the most horrifying and sanctifying experiences you'll ever go through. And the reason is because there's only one steering wheel in the car, and it's not in your hands. God says, I'm driving. It's me. That's it. You lose control. You lose all other gods. Come and follow me. I want you and you alone. God wants us all the time and everywhere, not just on Sunday mornings, but also on Friday nights. He doesn't want all of your life except for this one little part. He wants all of you, every area of your life, to enjoy him and to worship him and to testify to him. Who is the Lord that you should obey him? He is the one who has made you alive and brought you to himself, that you might enjoy him and worship him and serve him all of your life. Let me end with this. You know, many reject the Lord God because they want freedom, right? They want freedom from having to answer to anybody. They say, if, if I reject God, then I'll be free from religious constraints, from moral obligations. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. But the reality is none of us are ever free. None of us are ever autonomous and independent. All of us have something that we worship, that we serve. And so if we spend our life trying to, to earn money, and that's the goal of our life, then the money is our God. We worship that God. We serve that God. We do everything we can for that God. If our whole goal of life is to raise children and take care of them and love them and help them, then our children become our gods. Or, or maybe there are least, less respectable things, such as the secret sin in your life that you say, you know what, it's really not that big of a deal. I have control over it. If that's the case, just quit. But you see, you can't because that thing is your God. It's your Lord. It controls your life. And so the reality is none of us are ever free. In fact, Peter Forsyth said, the first duty of every soul is to find not its freedom, but its master. The deliverance of God in Exodus and today is not a freedom from slavery. Rather, it is a freedom from one master, Pharaoh, to a better master, the Lord. He says, let my people go that they may serve me, worship me, feast with me, enjoy me. Let me end with this story. Again, one I've shared before, but such a helpful story for me. There's a story of Abraham Lincoln who he came upon a slave auction and at this slave auction, there was this beautiful, young, attractive female. 
that went up for auction. And she was getting very high bids because there were many men who wanted to purchase her for very devious reasons. And so Lincoln starts bidding on this woman to, to purchase her. And finally, he, he wins the bid and the woman comes to him with head hung down, not sure what her new master wants with her. And Lincoln looks at her and says, you're free to go. I purchase your freedom. You can go anywhere you want, do anything you want. You're free to go. Lincoln turns to walk away and the woman follows behind him, turns around thinking she must not understand. So he says, listen, you can go wherever you want. I, I purchased your freedom. Go ahead. You can go free. Go wherever you want. Starts to walk away. Woman starts to follow him again. Finally, he turns around and says, you know, do you, do you not understand? I've, I've purchased you. You're, you're free. You're free to go. And she said, I'm free, right? He said, yep. She said, so I can go wherever I want. He said, yep. Do whatever I want to do. Yep. I choose to follow you. You see, in this life, you don't get a choice of being slave or free. But you do get a choice of who you are a slave for. You can be a slave for all of these idols that never love you, never care for you, never tend to you. Or you can be a slave to the Lord God. And it is a wonderful slave ship, as awful as that sounds. It's wonderful because he loves you and you are no longer a slave, but you are his child. See, freedom is not having no master. It is having the right master. And so who is your master? Who is the Lord that you should obey him? He is the creator God of the entire universe. The Lord is the saving God who delivers us from the bondage of false idols. And the Lord is the vivifying God who gives us life and gives it to us abundantly. Who is the Lord that you should obey him? Well, the plagues tell us he is the one true God and there is no other God beside him. Let's pray.